The dark, early morning hours of Christmas Day, 1950, were the perfect time for a heist. Westminster Abbey was quiet, security unsuspecting, as four students from the University of Glasgow set out to steal, or steal back, something of great importance to Scotland. They were not there for treasure or relics or ancient manuscripts tucked away behind the abbey's massive walls. They were there for a rather plain-looking 336-pound, 125-kilo block of red sandstone that had been placed underneath King Edward's chair, an ancient high-backed chair made from solid oak that had been constructed to contain the stone, the Stone of Destiny, or the Stone of Scone, which Edward I, known as Longshanks, or the Hammer of the Scots, had taken from Scotland in 1296. For centuries, the stone had been used for the coronations of Scottish kings. Legend says it would cry out when a true king stood upon it. When Edward took the stone and English monarchs began using it in their own coronations, a tradition that has continued to this day, the Stone of Destiny was placed underneath the coronation chair to symbolize England's rule over Scotland. And 700 years later, four students from Glasgow decided it was time for Scotland to take it back. Surrounded by the tombs of some of England's most famous names, including Charles Darwin, Sir Isaac Newton, Charles Dickens, 30 different kings and queens, including Mary Tudor, Elizabeth of York, Anne of Cleves, a few Williams, several King Henrys, and Edward I himself. These students quietly, under cover of darkness, pried out the stone from underneath its centuries-old resting place. Their flashlights flickered over Edward's marble tomb, and the 700 years from the day he had taken it from Scotland to the first hours of Christmas morning in 1950 felt like a single moment. Centuries of generations feeling like they were merely one second casually melding into the next. So many things would go wrong for these students. I would not believe the almost slapstick accounts of everything that happened on this night if we didn't have their surviving stories. It has everything you could want in a classic, outrageous heist story. And the most incredible thing, apart from the fact that this story is actually true, apart from the fact that they were stealing back a symbol of Scottish nationalism that had been taken from them 700 years before from freaking Westminster Abbey, is that they were going to get away with it. Join me today as we uncover the history of stealing and stealing back the Stone of Destiny. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. So what is the Stone of Destiny, and where does it come from? Well, as with anything old and mysterious, many legends exist. It's known as Leofal in Gaelic, which means the Stone of Destiny. It's also known as the Stone of Scone, or the Speaking Stone, because it was said to ring out when a chosen king stepped upon it at the time of coronation. 
To further complicate things, there are two different stones known as Leofal. One is the focus of today's episode, and was a part of Scottish coronations for centuries, until it was placed under Edward I's coronation chair for some more centuries. The other currently sits on the hill of Tara in Ireland, and is a standing stone also surrounded in mystery and legend. Today we are going to specifically discuss the Scottish Stone of Destiny. From what I can tell, people have pretty heated opinions about the origins of the stone. Some say it originated in Ireland, claiming it was used during the coronations of Irish kings on the hill of Tara and was brought later to Scotland, probably sometime in the 10th century. Some say that's just lore confusing things with the stone currently sitting atop the hill of Tara. Some legends say it belonged to the ancient and mysterious Tuatha de Danann of Ireland, known as the people of the goddess Danu in Celtic mythology, who inhabited Ireland before the arrival of the ancestors of the modern-day Irish. They were said to have been skilled in magic, and when they were defeated by the modern Irish, legend holds that they disappeared into the hills, becoming associated with deities and fairies in later mythology. Some claim they remain there to this day. Some say the stone has biblical origins, that Jacob used it as a pillow at Bethel, where he had a vision of a ladder reaching up to the heavens while sleeping on it. I don't know how a 336-pound stone would make for a comfortable pillow, but that's the legend. Some say it was the pedestal of the Ark of the Covenant in the Temple of Jerusalem. The deeper into the internet you go, the more colorful the conspiracies get. In all likelihood, the stone probably originated in Scotland. Geologists from the British Geological Survey conclusively confirmed in 1998 that it was made of old red sandstone quarried in the vicinity of Stone Scotland. There are some who believe the stone that was confirmed to have been quarried in Scotland isn't actually the real Stone of Destiny, but the Scottish Stone of Destiny is probably of Scottish origin. According to Historic UK, we know the Stone of Destiny was used in the crowning ceremonies of the Scottish kings of Dalriada, in what is now Argyll. When Kenneth I, the 36th king of Dalriada, united the Scots and Pictish kingdoms, he moved his capital to Scone around 840 CE, and the Stone of Destiny, now the Stone of Scone, went with him. After that, Scottish kings were coronated on the stone for centuries atop Moot Hill at Scone Palace in Perthshire. The stone itself is a good-looking stone, but surprisingly plain for all the legend attached to it. It's a big slab of red sandstone, relatively smooth but for some chisel marks. There are two iron rings bored into the top on each side, used for lifting. But it's not famous for its looks, it's famous for what it means to Scotland. It is a symbol, an incredibly powerful one. Many feel it is a symbol of Scottish nationalism and sovereignty, and to this day it evokes a lot of emotion for a lot of people. And in 1296, when Edward I forcibly took it from Scotland after his victory at the Battle of Dunbar, he did so because of what it symbolized. By taking the stone and placing it under a coronation chair for English royalty, he was laying claim to Scotland. It was a wound that still stings 700 years later for many people. Some claim that when Edward was moving to take the stone, the monks at Scone Abbey gave him a fake, hiding the real stone in a riverbed or perhaps burying it somewhere safe, though there isn't much evidence to support this. At least this theory has never been confirmed. 
1328, the Scots almost got the stone back when England and Scotland entered into a peace treaty, the Treaty of Northampton, the terms of which included England agreeing to return the stone. But they didn't, apparently because there were some extremely unruly angry mobs outside of Westminster Abbey at the time. The stone could not be removed safely. During World War II, the stone was buried under Westminster for safekeeping to protect it from bombings. There was even a plan for relocating it sent to the Prime Minister of Canada, just in case. But it remained unscathed and was returned to the coronation chair until the wee hours of Christmas morning in 1950, when four students did what no war or treaty had managed to do for 700 years. Those four students were Ian Hamilton, Kay Matheson, Alan Stewart, and Gavin Vernon. All four were members of the Scottish National Covenant, an organization that was seeking home rule for Scotland. I'm not even going to pretend that I understand much about all of the different parties and politicians that were a part of this particular bit of history. Home rule and independence have been issues for Scotland for centuries, and from what I've gathered while researching all of this, those issues are still present and they still elicit strong feelings in every direction. I will do my best to try and understand and explain the politics of it where I can. I know from the statistics given to me by Podbean that I have some listeners in Scotland and England. To you, I say that one, I'm very sorry for probably mispronouncing things, and two, I would love to hear from you if you got anything to add to this particular story. So shoot me an email if you'd like, I would love to hear your thoughts. Now, getting back to 1950. Ian Hamilton was at the University of Glasgow, studying law. He approached Gavin Vernon, an easygoing young man studying engineering at the university, and asked him to join himself and a woman named Kay Matheson in one of the most famous heists Scotland would ever know. Kay was studying domestic science at the university, and as luck would have it, she had a car. The three became four when another engineering student, Alan Stewart, found out about the whole thing and pledged his car to the cause in exchange for a spot on the team. This was fortuitous, as it gave them another set of hands to transport the heavy stone, as well as a second car. College students back then, just like today, were completely broke. Going all the way to London was expensive for four students. There was gas and food to think of. So to aid them in their pursuit of this national treasure, the leader of the Scottish National Party, a man named John McCormick, gave Ian 50 pounds. According to an online CPI UK inflation calculator, 50 pounds in 1950 equates to about 1,724 pounds in 2020. That's one insane inflation rate. 3,349.22% of insanity in all, with a 5.19% inflation rate per year between then and now. That was a lot of bags of crisps. The four decided to drive down from Glasgow to London, a trip that took them 18 hours. That's a super long time for a 412 mile or 663 kilometer drive, but it was 1950. Today, according to TravelMath.com, that drive would take you about seven hours, less than half the time it would have in 1950, and that's even including time for a nice stopover in Birmingham. The four were driving in two Ford Anglias, small family cars manufactured by Ford UK until the late 60s when they were replaced by the Ford Escort. 
which is a real shame because the Anglias were far more adorable. When they arrived in London, they were tired and apprehensive, but still charged by the fire of their cause and the overconfidence that comes with youth. Upon arrival, they didn't simply spill out of the cars and into the abbey to take the stone. They had a plan. Sort of. Ian had done his homework. He had borrowed every single book on Westminster Abbey from the Mitchell Library in Glasgow to learn as much as he could about the place. He had also visited Westminster previously by himself on a reconnaissance trip. He examined the layout, tried to get a sense of the abbey after hours, learn how many security guards were on the grounds, and look for any possible entries and escape routes. It was decided that Ian would enter the abbey, hide until after hours, and let the others in after it closed. This seemed as good a plan as any. So that night, Ian found himself a hiding place after all the tourists had left and the doors had been locked. Then he waited. He waited there, in the darkness, alone among the tombs of kings, queens, and thinkers, half sure and half unsure of himself and this bold, mostly thought-through plan. Though this plan seemed like a good idea, and it kind of was, it didn't work, because he was discovered by the security guard making rounds. I can't imagine the sense of dread Ian must have felt in that moment. It must have been one of those moments in time where every outcome possible plays out in your head all at once. Would this mean arrest, national embarrassment for himself and for Scotland? Was it all over before it had really begun? This is the first time in this story that Ian would find himself on the receiving end of good luck. Because the security guard didn't think Ian was there to steal anything. He thought Ian was there because he was a drunk trying to find a place to sleep. The guard even gave Ian a coin before sending him out on his way as an act of charity. Ian later said this was the only part of the whole experience he felt guilty about. The students were disheartened that their plan had not come to fruition that night, but they were no less determined to see it through. Waiting in the abbey had been a bust, so they needed a new plan. The next day, Alan and Gavin returned to the abbey, posing as tourists to try and find more information on security guard shifts. They learned that one of the side doors had been replaced some time before. Instead of the heavy, unbreakable oak used previously, this one was made of pine. According to a wood strength chart I found online at something called Wood Monsters, which I'm hoping is reliable, pine has about half the PSI of oak. The students knew they would never be able to pry open one of the oak doors, and decided that breaking through the much easier to manage pine door was their only option. So on the night of Christmas Eve, into the wee hours of a dark Christmas morning, the four made their way to the abbey, armed with nothing but crowbars, a deep love for Scotland, and two Fort Anglias. What happened next is history. The following details on what happened on Christmas morning 1950 is largely taken from Ian Hamilton's own account. As always, you can find all the sources I've used in the show notes. Under cover of a quiet Christmas darkness, the four students drove up as inconspicuously as they could 
to the Abbey. Kay stayed outside in one of the cars with the engine running, in case there was need for a quick getaway. Meanwhile, Ian, Alan, and Gavin pried open the pine door. The three snuck in the abbey, and Ian closed the door behind them. The abbey was shrouded in complete darkness, save for a dim light glowing at the end of the nave. The three moved in a silent hurry towards the coronation chair and the Stone of Destiny. Ian had studied the abbey so well that there was no worry of tripping over unknown obstacles. The light from his flashlight gave them all the visibility they needed. They listened closely for the guard. This time there would be no easy excuse if the three were caught together. They made it to the metal grill in front of the chair and found it was already open. Another fortuitous stroke of good luck. Hearts pounding, they creeped up to the chair. Ian thought that even if they were unsuccessful on this night, they would at least get to touch the stone. The flashlight flickered over the green marble tomb of Edward I. He had been there when the stone had been taken from Scotland 700 years before. Now he was there when they decided to take it back. The stone was chest height before the three of them being raised up upon an aperture under the chair, which was lifted from the floor about three feet on a trestle. The stone was encased in a wooden frame underneath the chair, and they pried at it in order to get to the stone. As the old wood cracked and cried from the force, they felt a pang of guilt for damaging it. After all, it wasn't the chair that they felt belonged to them. They had hoped the stone would simply slip out from underneath the chair, but it was a tight fit. The woodworkers all those centuries ago had been exact. Ian went around the back and pushed as hard as he could, and it budged, but not much. The iron chains that were bored into the stone kept catching on the chair, almost as if the chair itself were protesting what they were doing. They realized brute strength alone wasn't going to work. They stopped for a moment, caught their breath, and regrouped their thoughts. One of them held the light, one pushed from the back, and the other carefully pried at the sides with the crowbar, which I've learned is called a jammy in the UK. I had to Google that one. Inch by inch, the stone was pried out from under Edward's seat. The plaque that said coronation chair and stone fell. Ian caught it in midair and stuffed it into his coat pocket, thinking the abbey wouldn't need it anymore. After one final heave, the stone was released from its wooden box, and Ian ran forward to help grab it as the three of them caught it. But at 366 pounds, it was too heavy. They had to put it down. It soon became painfully obvious that there was no way they were simply going to carry it out of there. Suddenly, Alan had an idea. They could place the stone on one of their coats and drag it out. Ian volunteered his as it was the most finely made and the least likely to tear, although later he admitted he had wanted the honor for his coat. He quickly struggled out of his jacket and laid it on the ground. They grabbed the iron rings to lift the stone onto the coat, and as they pulled at the stone, it broke in two pieces. Can you imagine the shock 
to the heart those three must have had when the stone broke in two. Here they were, risking their futures to bring back this ancient stone, the symbol of their country's sovereignty, and they had just broken it. They wondered if it was better to alert the guard now so it could be repaired rather than bring it back home in two pieces. Alan said aloud, We've broken Scotland's luck. Ian said he was going to be sick, but noticed before he lost the contents of his stomach that the area around the break was much darker than the rest of the stone, which meant it had already cracked years before. The three felt a wave of relief that they hadn't completely ruined the stone all on their own. And now, at least, it would be easier to carry. One of the pieces was smaller than the other, about the size of a football, and small enough for one person to carry. Gavin told the others to quit talking and get moving. Every moment they were there increased their chances of getting caught. Ian quickly scooped up the smaller piece, which he said weighed about 100 pounds, which is a little over 45 kilos. He carried it away, past the altar, down the steps, through the poet's corner door, and into the mason's yard. Kay saw Ian staggering out of the abbey and drove the car down to meet him. She got out and opened the door for him as he lobbed the piece of Scotland's destiny into the back seat. It's broken, he told her. Get back into cover. She drove the car back up to her position at the top of the lane as Ian rushed back into the abbey to help the others. While Ian and Kay had been hiding the smaller piece in Kay's car, Alan and Gavin had been dragging the larger piece on Ian's jacket towards the exit. Ian joined them, and the three carefully lugged the stone step by step down the altar, then across the nave, the jacket underneath tearing occasionally under the strain of its destiny. They were sweaty and breathless, trying to carry the heavy half of the stone while keeping as quiet as possible. Suddenly there was a startling crunching noise, as the plaque Ian had placed in his pocket earlier fell out just as they brought the stone down on top of it. With the next heave, Alan picked it up and placed it in his own pocket, not sure what else to do with it. The three finally made it back to the pine door. Just as Ian opened it, he saw that Kay had started up her car and was driving towards the three of them. This alarmed them, as it was far too soon for Kay to be approaching. Something must have gone wrong. The three still needed to drag the stone outside through the mason's yard, but stopped as Ian ran out to Kay and her car. When he got to her, Ian heatedly said, Get the damned car back into cover, we're not ready yet. She replied, A policeman has seen me, he's coming across the road. This was horrible news, and the two of them sat there wondering if this was it. Ian got into the passenger seat, and the two of them waited knowing the officer was approaching. Ian wiped the dust from the abbey onto Kay's coat and grabbed Alan's spare coat that he had left in the back seat, hastily throwing it over the smaller portion of the stone resting in Kay's back seat. Then the two of them, not knowing what else to do, grabbed one another in a lover's embrace and started making out. That was the only thing either one of them could think of to do and apparently it helped calm their nerves by the time the officer reached the car. They only stopped when they were sure he had seen them. They wanted to give the impression that they were a couple who had driven up to London for the holidays. 
The officer demanded to know what they were doing on private property at 5 a.m. on Christmas morning. They lied and said they had made it to the city too late to get a room anywhere. They did all of this while holding hands and acting like a couple in love. And apparently it was working. The officer calmed down into an easy manner, took his helmet and placed it on the roof of the car, then took out a cigarette, lit it, and had no intention of moving until he had finished smoking it. This was alarming to them both as they were in the middle of a heist. They had no idea what the other two in their party who were still inside with the other half of the stone were up to, and now they were accidentally hanging out with a police officer. While he was smoking, he told the two of them that there was a parking lot down the road, suggesting they could park there for the night. Then Kay said, If we're not comfortable there, we can always get you to run us in and give us a bed in the cells. The three laughed, though only two of them sincerely, and the officer told them that, quote, There's not a policeman in London that would arrest you tonight. None of them want to appear in court on Boxing Day to give evidence against you. Ian replied, a good night for a crime, and they all laughed again. While the officer was standing there, both Kay and Ian could hear a scraping noise coming from inside the abbey. It was Alan and Gavin, unaware that the others were outside with a police officer. Ian and Kay began talking more loudly, laughing too loud at the officer's jokes in hopes that the other two would hear them and be warned. There was a loud thud, but the conversation continued. Right behind the police officer, Kay and Ian saw the pine door creak open. Gavin stepped halfway out the door before he froze after seeing the police officer. He silently and slowly crept back in and closed the door just as the officer was getting ready to finally leave. The officer told them to get going and Kay started the car. She pulled away and began driving up the road. When they were out of sight, Ian slipped out of the car and raced back to the abbey for the others, and Kay drove on with half of Scotland's destiny in her back seat. When Ian got back to the abbey and the other half of the stone, he discovered that Alan and Gavin had fled. Alone now, Ian heaved the stone, which was still on his jacket, all the way back to the second car by himself. He said later, quote, when I lifted the stone in Westminster Abbey, I felt Scotland's soul was in my hands. When Ian got to the car, he realized the keys which had been in the pocket of his jacket dragging the stone had fallen out. They were somewhere between the coronation chair and the car. He had to scramble back and trace his steps to find them, and he may never have found them if he hadn't accidentally stepped on them. This story is so ridiculous, and I love the way everything just seemed to work itself out. After accidentally finding his keys by stepping on them, Ian hurried back to the car just as Gavin and Alan finally found him. It became obvious that the car couldn't handle the weight of the stone and the three of them, so it was decided that Ian and Alan would continue on in the Anglia, and Gavin would head home separately by train. Splitting up did seem like a good idea anyway. Ian and Alan got into the car and drove away, with the other half of the Stone of Destiny in their trunk. Although our ragtaggle band of four had successfully made it out of the abbey with the stone, their adventure was not over. Now they had to formulate a plan for what exactly they were going to do with the two pieces. 
Almost immediately after they had left, security had discovered that the stone was gone. The guard called the police, and roadblocks were set up on all the roads out of London. The borders with Wales and Scotland were closed for the first time in 400 years. This theft was a big deal, and it was instantly taken with severe sincerity. The hunt for the stone was on. And our four conspirators, university students who had, against all odds, managed to pull off one of the most famous heists of all time, found themselves right in the middle of it. Kay, alone in her car with the smaller half of the stone, had a bit of a head start, but she still ran into roadblocks. She remained calm and cool, despite having the stone under a blanket in her back seat. No doubt the authorities underestimated the single woman traveling alone. That was one of their first mistakes. She drove to the Midlands and left the stone with a friend of hers for the time being. At some point during the transfer of the stone, it fell on her foot breaking one of her toes, because that's just how this story goes. She then headed back to her family's croft in Westeros, Scotland, probably by train, and they would return later for her half of the stone. The boys in the other car knew they had to get rid of their half as soon as possible. There would be no getting it back to Scotland right now. Plus, it was weighing the car down so much that there was no way the authorities wouldn't notice if they were to pass through roadblocks and a closed border to get home. Unsure of what to do, the boys decided to throw their half into a field somewhere in Kent. After all, if you need to hide a stone, hiding it in plain sight where you'd expect to find other stones of no consequence isn't entirely a bad idea. When the four of them all made it back to Scotland, they found their heist on every newspaper and radio and television in the country, and the authorities were sniffing every corner of Scotland for the stone. In Scotland, the theft was received as a celebration, and had ignited a fire under the independence movement, which at that point had been somewhat dormant after the war. In England, they were now criminals. In Scotland, they were folk heroes. They waited two weeks before heading back down to retrieve the two halves of the stone. Kay's half was easier to handle, as it was smaller and more inconspicuous. Also, the authorities had no idea the stone had broken. They were still looking for one big chunk of sandstone. However, the larger piece was a bit more troublesome to bring home, because when Ian and friends returned for it, they discovered that a Romany camp had sprung up around it because, again, that's just how this story goes. But apart from what was probably some initial awkwardness, the Romani let them take it with no trouble, and the Stone of Destiny, albeit in two pieces, was finally returned to Scotland. When they made it over the border with the larger piece, they doused it in whiskey as part of a homecoming ceremony. Once repatriated, the four conspirators had absolutely no idea what to do next. They didn't even know where to start with covering their tracks, and so made absolutely no attempt to do so. They took the stone to a stonemason slash Scottish nationalist politician named Robert Gray, and he mended the stone, uniting its two pieces back into the proper Stone of Destiny once again. 
Gray claimed that before he mended the stone, he hid a note in a brass tube inside of it. No one but his wife knows what was written on it, and he took the secret to his grave when he died in 1975. Some claim the stone he gave back to the students was a fake, but like the lore that claims it was hidden centuries before by monks at Scone, there is no solid evidence that confirms this. Investigating the theft was relatively easy, at least in regards to who had done it. The police went to the Mitchell Library in Glasgow and discovered that Ian had checked out every single book on the Abbey. Kay's family croft was thoroughly searched by authorities, but of course the stone was not found there. None of the students cracked under questioning as to the whereabouts of the stone. The authorities were closing in, and it became obvious to the conspirators that they could not hide the stone forever. They decided they had accomplished their purpose. They had raised awareness of the Scottish nationalist movement. Now they decided to place the stone in the hands of Scotland's authorities, specifically to Arbroath town councillors, D.A. Gardner and F.W.A. Thornton. Ian, Gavin, and Alan arranged to meet the councillors in the ruins of the old abbey of Arbroath in April four months after the heist. This was a symbolic place, as it was here, in 1320, that Scotland signed its Declaration of Independence. The students and the counselors carried the Stone of Destiny through the crumbling abbey to where the high altar once stood. They draped the blue and white flag of Scotland over the stone before leaving its fate in the hands of the counselors. Those counselors called the authorities to tell them that they had the stone. The Abbey's custodian, James Wishart, locked the gates and stood guard over the stone until they arrived. After that, it was taken back once again to England. Elizabeth II was crowned while sitting on top of it. But, in 1996, English authorities returned the stone to Scotland in a surprising gesture, under the condition that it be returned to England for coronation ceremonies. It now resides in the Crown Room at Edinburgh Castle, alongside the Scottish Crown Jewels, where it gets millions of visitors each year. And what of the fate of our four students? Well, despite having broken into Westminster Abbey and absconding with Scotland's national treasure, the four students were never prosecuted, because it was feared that if they were, riots and further cries for independence would result. In Scotland, the four were now considered heroes. Gavin later said he never had to buy another drink in his life. So, in the end, they got away with it. The four parted ways after that, traveling along separate roads, never to meet again, united only in memory and purpose. Kay lived a long life. She claimed that forevermore she suffered from stiff toes as a result of the raid and her broken toe. She became a teacher of domestic science and a Gaelic scholar. She is described as having been feisty, funny, and an inspiration. She passed away peacefully at a residential home on the shores of Loch Yu in 2013 at the age of 84. Gavin Vernon became an electrical engineer and lived the happy life of a wanderer for some years, seeing everything from sunrises in Saudi Arabia to sunsets in Canada, where he finally married and settled down in British Columbia. 
He passed away from cancer in 2004 at the age of 78. Alan Stewart became a successful entrepreneur, married, had children and grandchildren, and lived and worked in Glasgow for most of his life. He passed away during a high-risk surgery after a fall in 2019 at the age of 89. According to his obituary in the Scotland Herald, when being admitted for surgery, Alan was asked how he felt. He replied he would feel a lot better if Scotland won the rugby match against England that coming Sunday. During that match that occurred after Alan had passed away, Scotland was down 31 to 0. Alan's family said they're sure Alan had a word with the team at halftime, because Scotland went on to draw 38 points and retain the Calcutta Cup. Ian Hamilton went on to become a successful criminal lawyer. He was quoted later about the heist saying, I've defended a lot of daft people during 30 years as a criminal lawyer, but I doubt very much if I've defended anyone who was as daft as we were then. He is the last surviving one of the four at 95 years young. He is still an advocate for Scottish independence. There was an independent film received with mixed reviews on the heist that came out in 2008. I watched it and it's pretty good. They fabricated a bit of a romance between Ian and Kay and added some things in here and there for the sake of story, but that's film for you. If you visit Westminster Abbey today, and you see that chair that was built to house a stone taken from Scotland. Take a moment and look upon the spot where it used to lie, a spot that is now empty, and think of what that means. And give a moment of your thoughts to the four unlikely students in 1950 who ignited the spirit of a nation with a stone. It seems strange that the four of them never saw one another again. They came together when they felt Scotland needed them, then went their separate ways when the job was done. Perhaps it was the overconfidence of youth, or the sense of adventure, the fire for a cause dear to them all, or maybe, in the end, it really was destiny. That brings the story of the Stone of Destiny to a close. Thank you so much for listening. The next episode will be ready for you in three weeks. Until then, you can get a hold of me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing wherever you listen. That makes a big difference in helping the show get some visibility. You can support the show financially if you're able for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation for any amount you'd like. The link to do that can be found under the support tab at historycashpodcast.podbean.com. I'm an independent podcaster, so anything you do, even just telling a friend about the podcast, is incredibly appreciated. Sound effects and music for today were licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay excellent, friends. I'll see you again in three weeks with another piece of history better than fiction. Until we meet again, go make some history.